Bullshit. Pretend for a moment we've entered a parallel universe, free of bullshit and full of bold solutions. That's what the No BS Marketing Show is all about. I'm your host, Dave Mastovich. Our guest today is Mike Duckworth of the Duckworth Haggerty Group. But first, let's cut the bullshit. Today's topic ties to the desire for control and how it impacts personal growth and team productivity. I've been fortunate to work for a lot of different organizations. One common trait of each experience is the impact that the need for control has on productivity. Our desire for control, lack of self-confidence, and innate drive for self-preservation combine to make us behave irrationally. Examples abound. You bring in an expert to help in an area where you know you're not the expert, then your need for control and lack of confidence lead you to not do what the experts tell you to do. You hire a new employee and tell them you want them to have at it. You claim to turn them loose, but you end up holding them back. You're less than forthcoming about the details behind what you and your team do. You subconsciously like mystifying the process. In each case, you're holding yourself and your team back. Believe in your ability to choose strategic partners. Trust them. If they violate that trust, find another one. Turn new and current employees loose for real. If they consistently fail to deliver, address it with them and have the courage to do what you know you have to do. Demystify your processes. Ambiguity breeds mediocrity, not self-preservation. Cut the BS, believe in yourself and your team. Stop letting your desire for control hold you back. The No BS Show is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash no BS. Try a book like The Girl with the Lower Back Tattoo by Amy Schumer. You can download it for free today. Go to audibletrial.com slash no BS. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Mike Duckworth has helped clients manage the complexities of wealth experienced by business owners and corporate executives for nearly a quarter century. He joined Merrill Lynch as Managing Director Wealth Management in 2008, bringing 15 years experience in the private client advisory group of a large commercial bank. Mike was a recipient of the 2014 David Brady Award, recognizing his outstanding philanthropy, client focus, and commitment to his company and community. He's been recognized as one of the Financial Times' top 400 advisors and Barron's top 1,200 financial advisors. He currently serves on the executive committee of the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh and is a member of the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh's Circle of Care. Mike Duckworth, welcome to the show. Hi, Dave. Good morning. Good morning. How have you been? Great. That's good. We have a lot of cool stuff to talk about. I want to make sure we talk about the exciting new thing that's happening with your new building and new offices. I also want to make sure we talk about some of the work you do with uh, special needs and challenged situations for families. But I also want to hear the whole way back with you starting by walking through your educational background and your career journey. Okay, sure. So I grew up in Eastern Pennsylvania, about an hour and a half north of Philadelphia in the middle of a very rural area. I went to a um, 
high school that graduated 150 kids. It was called Palisades High School. It was an amazing, wonderful place to be that age. And I loved it. Um, when it came time to go to college, I knew I wanted to go to a city school and I wanted to get away from my parents. I didn't, you know, I wanted to get away from home more or less and uh, found Pitt and it was a perfect fit for me. So uh, I went to school at Pitt um, and uh, while I was there, my mom and dad got divorced, which put financial pressure on me to figure out how to pay for school. And so uh, the the experience of uh, being a student uh, also included being in the restaurant business because that's I would wait tables or bus tables or bartend, whatever I could do to, to make cash to save for tuition and my other expenses. I came out of Pitt. First of all, I thought I was going to go to law school. So um, I studied English and writing, and uh, I thought that that would be a fine setup for law school. I never made it to law school, uh, which is part of my story that happens later. But I came out uh, and into a job market at that time that was awful in 1991, 92. It was very soft, you know, economy particularly with, uh, you know, having a, a generalized, uh, you know, Bachelor of Arts degree, like a writing degree. So um, I struggled with that, like a lot of people coming out at that time did, and um, ultimately discovered that uh, I was going to have to get really creative to find a job. And decided that I was going to create a, um, a video resume, which at that time, you know, this was way before Apple products and other companies' products made it easy to do this, you know, mm -hmm. on your way to work with a handheld device, let alone any computer device right. in 1992. But so what the idea of that was, uh, was that I would go around and interview people that I would have listed as references and uh, have them talking about their experience of me. And I videotaped where I worked and I videotaped uh, my home and my some of my friends. And to make a long story short, I, I found this place out in Moon Township that would charge you by the hour to edit. And I built this three or four minute uh a video resume thing that was really very goofy to look at it now. It's funny. But it was to tell the Mike Duckworth story to kind of help you stand out in a tough uh, job market. Yeah. And having had no success uh, to that point, I immediately had a lot of success. And while people, the feedback was, dude, this is goofy. They were also continuing the conversation. Okay, well, tell me about your experiences. And so I ended up being offered uh, a job in, with a daily or a weekly newspaper rather uh, in Ohio. And I was on my way to take that job. And I was at the restaurant I worked at and telling a lot of these clients that I'd known through college goodbye. And one of them said, Michael, why didn't you tell me? I, I didn't even know you were looking for a job and you should come and talk to us about jobs at the bank. And in fact, we have a sales job, a bunch of them available right now. And I was too polite to say, who, you know, who would want to work at a bank? Really? Like, I'm going to be in marketing or advertising, or I'm going to end up in law school. You know, I'm, I'm going to do something great. 
And it just didn't appeal. Anyway, to make a long story short, I interviewed and it was a great job and it was a much, much better situation. And I figured it would give me a chance to learn about something that was sort of foreign to my family experience, which was the finance of wealth and, and planning around that. So I got hired by this small bank. Um, they sent me to, to a post uh, in Warren, Pennsylvania, which was really interesting because I'd never been to Warren before I accepted the job. Uh, but that was an awesome experience. And I was there for 16 years. Um, in Warren? No, I was in Warren for two years okay. for the bank. I got brought back to the city uh, after I was safe to present <laughs> to the city of Pittsburgh, I guess. And, um, and, but I was with the same organization that whole time. So in 2008, uh, for a lot of different reasons, it became clear that, that I had to make a change. Um, my, the team that I had built at the bank had had a lot of success and, uh, uh, things were really going as well as I could want them to go for our clients, for us. But there were just a bunch of things that were transpiring in the financial services industry at this organization, organization specifically that caused me to decide that it was not the best environment to go forward in. And uh, I left and ultimately chose to go to Merrill Lynch in 2008. And I've been there ever since. Creative storytelling. You come up with an idea to use video at a time when it's hard for anyone under the age of 35 probably to even think of this, but uh, back in the 90s, that was a completely novel concept. So that helps you, plus the first job and the part-time jobs of surviving and trying to get money gave you a network. So you combine these two things, this creative storytelling and your network that you gained from your part-time jobs while you were bartending and working in a restaurant, and it leads you into a new position that ends up driving your entire career. It's really amazing when you go back and piece it together. And I have spoken on this, you know, as part of a larger story I will sometimes tell when I'm asked to speak uh, about the impact of decisions you make over long periods of time. Sometimes it's really hard to see the impact even of a little decision that that you make. But when you sort of pull it back apart a year later or five years later, you think to yourself, my God, I... If I, I could have very easily chosen this other thing, but I chose the one that I did. And now I can see, you know, what that opened up for me. And uh, so, you know, the first example of this was when I got sent to Warren by that bank. There was really two opportunities. They said, look, you could go to Warren or you could go to Punxsutawney. And um, I'd never been to either place. I knew Punxsutawney had a famous groundhog. So I asked the guy that I was going to work for who lived up there, which is, which, which do you think I should choose? He's like, I grew up in Warren, choose Warren. I'm like, great, Warren. And that was it. So I was off to Warren. And of course I met my wife there and I made some amazing friendships there. I found uh, a mentor there that really made a difference to me in my life. Who was that? So that was a guy named Ed and um, he ran the office in Warren uh, and when I got there, I was really very green. I mean, I had come from a family that did not have financial resources. And so I was learning really from the ground up this business and, and how to serve families who have real 
complexity to deal with around money. And so it would have been really easy for this guy, who is the guy established in that community, uh, it would have been really easy for him to either avoid me or, you know, push me off into a corner and allow me to fail, which would have been inevitable. I mean, without his help or his mentorship, without his support, let alone any active uh, role he might take in seeing that I fail, there was no way for me to accomplish anything without him allowing it more or less. And, uh, he, he chose to help and he chose to, to, to really guide decisions I was making about learning the business. He would, uh, talk with me, uh, and provide feedback after every meeting or interaction we had with clients or other people in the organization. And, uh, he made a decision to be helpful. And, you know, that's one of those things where I, at the time I couldn't see it as clearly. I mean, I wasn't present in the way that I am now to how kind that was of him. Um, but, uh, you know, years later I was able to see it and I actually called him. I hadn't seen him in, I don't know, five years. And I was going up to see Tracy's family for a holiday. And I said, Ed, let's get together and have breakfast. He's like, okay. You know, I had talked to him in a long time. He said, fine. So we meet for breakfast. He's like, why are, it's good to see you, but what's up? I said, I just want to say thank you. And I went through sort of this discovery that I had had that, you know, without his help, things could have very easily gone the other way. And it was, it was a cool, it was one of my best breakfasts, you know, just to be able to say thank you to this guy who, who was a, a was really helpful when I needed it. That's really cool. Any other mentors that uh, have impacted you in a positive way? Well, my mom and dad, for sure. I mean, they uh, both came out of very difficult family situations, highly dysfunctional family situations. And yet they uh, came together around the big idea of creating a life for me and my sister that was normal and opened up the whole world, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, I don't take that for granted because that is not the default when people are challenged, when they, you know, as, as I think about what they were challenged with, mm -hmm. the fact that they were able to create that space for us to have the success or to imagine the possibilities that my sister and I were able to imagine that they worked impossibly hard to make real, you know, they, that was an example. That was the first example, I guess. The No BS Marketing Podcast with Dave Mastovich is brought to you by Mass Solutions. Put our three-step No BS process to work for you. Visit MassSolutions.biz today to take your marketing to another level. It's all about bold solutions, no BS. You're listening to the No BS Marketing Show. That's Mike Duckworth, our guest today from the Duckworth Haggerty Group. And let's find out from him exactly what that means. What is the Duckworth Haggerty Group? So the Duckworth Haggerty Group is a financial services team that exists at Merrill Lynch. Um, we are 15 people and are also members of the private bank uh, at Merrill Lynch, which is called the Private Banking and Investment Group. So the Private Banking and Investment Group is really a boutique within the larger Merrill Lynch firm that is intended to serve the organization's most complicated families, oftentimes uh, the largest relationships, 
but in in all of these cases there's there's a general level of complexity that um, that we're addressing for these families and so there are 15 of us it's an amazing team you know it was six people when we got started it's now 15 our business has grown 3x since 2008 when we got to to Merrill Lynch. Tell me about the start because having started a business myself, knowing how it is at the beginning is pretty stressful when you go from a structured situation like you were with a formalized big company and now you spin off and who all was with it? Who were the six at the beginning? You don't have to say my name, but like, were there other partners that have stayed? Were there people that have left or was it, how did you do it? Yeah, there was really one primary partner uh, who is still my primary, you know, the other senior partner, and that is Jennifer Haggerty. And, and she's remarkable as a person. If you met her, you, she's got a tremendous positive energy. But as an advisor, she's really extraordinarily unique, even within a firm like Merrill Lynch. You know, as a female advisor, which there aren't enough of in the industry, she leads by example. She's trained as a lawyer. She spent nine years at Ernst & Young, and so she speaks tax. While she was there, she got her SEMA. She single-handedly raised uh, a son who is a fine young man. And uh, so... Um, so I, she's the talent behind all this, <laughs> because I know you both. <laughs> she's really... Uh, she's amazing, but... I, uh, so I am I've been very lucky, but uh, just as you walk around and talk to the people on the team and you hear each of their stories. They're just, they're great stories uh, that sort of drive them with purpose towards this industry and towards the, our team and, and their hearts are in the right place. And so I'm proud that they're people I get to work with. So you've tripled the size of the company in eight years. Yes. Talk about how that happened. Oh, it was hard. I mean, the... The challenge, everybody likes the idea of growth, right? And and it's something that we are still on a path. We think that we have a lot of growth potential available to us. We're young. I mean, um, we're young team. Um, but the, uh, you know, and I talk a lot about this idea of complexity and the better things get, the more complexity you draw into your life and then the harder things get and... So the better things got for us in terms of growth, the harder they became. And the challenge really became one of leadership and of strategy and making sure clients were, were first. You know, when you're in a high growth mode, it would be possible for that growth to get in the way of delivering on the things you said you were going to deliver. And so... So that was hard. It, it challenged everybody, but it, it was particularly hard for me. One of the, uh, you want to talk down that path a little bit about the difficulties and how you've overcome them? Uh, so, I mean, the first, the first thing is it's, everyone had to grow. Everyone had to uh, sort of develop into the, the, the demands that were put upon them with our growth. Everyone had to assimilate new team members as we grew. And, um, and, and so getting a, a small group of people organized is a lot easier than getting a larger group of people organized. So for me, leading six people was one thing and I felt like I could do that and, you know, keep the plate spinning. 
but as you know, you march towards 15 people, that's a, that's a very different thing. And you really need to have a, a, a way of organizing uh, around that again, so that you stay focused on the client. For us, of all of the things that we decided to do, the thing that was most helpful and was uh, this work we did in 2012, which was part of our steep, you know, steep part of our curve. And that was born out of the book and work of a guy named Simon Sinek who wrote a book called Start With Why. And the idea of this book, for those that don't know, is that companies that are really, really clear about why they wake up and do what they do and then communicate that up front with the people that they could or do interact with professionally um, have a couple of things happen. They, you know, if, if, the, if your why, if your reason for being, if your purpose aligns with the need of the client, then the client sorts in. And when they sort in, they sort in deeply and they open up and they make it possible for you to deliver the full extent of whatever you're capable of. Um, and it's also true that if you deliver your why and it's not what someone's looking for, they can sort out. And, and that's good too, because, you know, not every client, uh, you know, is, can go to any advisor. It, there's, a, there's an alignment that needs to exist. And so anyway, this start with why work was also about managing a group of people and making sure everyone was focused on the same big idea. And, and, and what are we all going to agree uh, is that big idea? And what are the words we'll use in the way that we'll, what's the framework? So it took us a while. I mean, we worked on this for several months uh, over, you know, three or four meetings and dinner and wine and arguing. And like, it was a process. And at the end of that, we came out with something we all felt really powerful and positive about. And that was a, a belief, this belief, which is um, if we listen deeply and if we work purposefully, we, our team is in a position to improve the quality of our clients' lives. So that's, that's it. That's the big idea. And there's a lot that sort of falls under that in terms of guiding beliefs that support each of these, these three primary ideas. But so with that work, uh, as of the leader of the team, a whole bunch of other practice management things got easier. And uh, that was a surprise. I wasn't expecting that part of it. I wanted everyone to be on the same page. But when everyone was aligned to that first, it was a lot easier to get everything else done because it, you could attach as an individual on the team how you connected to that big idea. So anyway, th through the growth curve, I would say that was one of the big things that, that we stumbled on and seized upon and helped us to keep it going and to keep the quality high during, you know, a steep part of the growth curve. So since it is the no BS marketing show, talk about a learning experience when maybe you were a BS boss, a tough employee, or didn't communicate the way you would have liked. Looking back, when do you think you might've been guilty of some BS? What did you do about it that might help our audience? Hmm. So, um, when I was the BSer. So there was a, so there was a situation early in my career. I was really, uh, I had not long after I came back to, to the city and I was in a primarily in a sales role 
and had worked with a gentleman who was a client of the organization and he had a business that there were some liquidity events that we had helped organize a series of them. And, uh, I had been a part of the team that was supporting this, this guy. And, uh, so I remember very distinctly, you know, being in communication with him as we got nearer to each one of these events. And I called him at one point to say, Hey, how are you? And how's everything going? And Oh, by the way, uh, when's your next event? And, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that was so funny about this person is that he was total no BS, which I think was one of the great qualities that he had, but he hit me right between the eyes with, dude, you don't care about like what's going on with me personally. You, you only care about when the next check is coming in, you know? And, and so what he was observing was that, uh, his experience of my interaction with him was, I was more interested in what was going to be in it for me. And he didn't need any more of that. You know, he, he, um, so it was an amazing learning experience and he, he, you know, he was really, really clear about the, the thing that he wanted from, from me. And it was, uh, not to be waiting for the money to come in, but to be helpful in some other real way. So, that was an amazing learning experience and I was grateful for it. It stung. Um, but, um, so that's an example. So you were crushed when he tells you this, uh, what did you do immediately thereafter with respect to him? And then how did you change long-term? Um, uh, so the, w with him, there was really nothing that I did. Uh, you know, I would be in communication with him occasionally, but there was a team, a broader team that was supporting him day to day. So my, uh, de-emphasizing my role on that team was sort of a natural thing at that time. Uh, but the, the power of that honest communication was that I was able to see that the relationship that people want to be in the the relationship that they need to be in with an advisor is one where the advisor puts their issues first, not the advisor's issues first. And, uh, you know, as a young person who felt pressure around a sales goal, you know, um, it was the perfect time for that lesson. And, uh, and so I'm grateful for it. Hear more of my interview with Mike Duckworth on episode two of the No BS Marketing Show.